Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to be talking about women from the Byzantine Empire period. Okay. And we, I have this amazing interview that I'm so excited to share with you about how to use some art history in the classroom to teach it. Awesome. Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Byzantine intersectionality. Okay. Okay. That is the title of the book that Roland Bedencourt wrote. And I got a chance to sit down with him and interview him. He is an expert on the Byzantine Empire. Okay. We, um, since he's an expert, we know I'm not. <laughs> um, what is the Byzantine Empire? So, students of ancient history would know that eventually the Roman Empire gets so big, um, and it's not a really sustainable vision, right? Right. They've um, expanded too far. Too far. And it's, there's, it's, it's not really, not, there's not a great system of administration in order to manage it. Um, there's not enough spoils from war going back to the capital for wealth. So there's sort of these, these problems that are leading to sort of the fall-ish, the slow, just, Mm -hmm. shifting of Rome. Okay. And um, Rome eventually splits in two. And so some people refer to the Byzantine Empire as the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, Or the Byzantine Empire. And it's basically in late antiquity, early Middle Ages is the peak of this, this empire. And in that empire, you, you know, and, and remember that like church and state are deeply intertwined. And so the Roman Catholic church is Mm -hmm. Rome. It's Italy. It's the Western Roman empire. Okay. And so the Eastern Orthodox church is what comes out of the Eastern Roman empire and the Byzantines. And, they have some really interesting writings that come out of this time, interesting artwork that come out of this time. Um, and what is, is kind of interesting is that they are really diving into and talking about some of the same themes sure. that we in our time find ourselves talking about. Like, talking about sexual relationships and consent and rape and um the fluidity of gender and um and it's it's so in, it's different in some ways like uh they have eunuchs and so right. that would be you know like what what does that mean in terms of gender and fluidity and and all of that um and and so that's kind of an interesting thing. So there's all of this this writing and artwork that's being developed. And what's really fascinating and what grabbed my attention as I'm reading his book on Byzantine intersectionality is that he actually starts his book by highlighting a bunch of women from history that help illustrate this mm-hmm. com- like 
complex narrative and, and conversation that's going on as the empire is grappling with these same issues that we seem to be talking about. Yeah, it sounds that way. And at one point in my conversation, he talks about how a lot of people make claims, historical claims like, oh, well, back then people didn't talk about this stuff or they didn't know about that or they didn't have ideas of consent or blah, 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 blah. blah. And he's like, well, actually, no, like they do yeah. talk about that. And um, this, you know, our dialogues that we're having presently are not brand new information. <laughs> um, and and I thought that was really interesting because I think that's a mistake that that we all make, right. you know, to assume that like we're the first people to really grapple with rape, you know, woohoo. Like, and um, let's not go that far. <laughs> but I get what you're saying. I'm following you. I mean, we can't think that we're so advanced that we've, uh, you know, we're beyond what their their comprehension was of that time period. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting. So he highlights um, Mary of Egypt, who is a saint in, um, in, and one thing that's interesting is that the two churches start to found, sort of have their own saints mm-hmm. and their own. So Mary of Egypt is very important in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Okay. Um, he, he talks about the martyrdom of Agatha, and I had never heard of this this woman, um, but her martyrdom was really fascinating to me because she's actually not killed at, because she's Christian. She, it, um, they they cut her breasts off as what? part as like her punishment. Um, oh, so that, that stood like out to me. Very aggressive. Super aggressive. Um, they talk about the Virgin Mary, who obviously is before um, this time period, but what he's focusing on is how the Byzantines dissect the story of the Virgin Mary. And then um, he talks about Theodora. And most people that teach world history, I'm sure, talk about the Byzantine Empire. And if they do, they probably talk about the Emperor Justinian, who's perhaps one of the most famous from this, you know, famous um, reign of all the emperors. Okay. Um, And so his wife, Theodora, is a really important figure in world history. She is sort of his, she's, she's controversial because she is incredibly powerful, but she comes from kind of a bad background. Um, her her dad was an entertainer. And so in a time when like entertainers are likened to prostitutes, mm-hmm. he has to actually get an exception in order to marry her um, because she's so below his his status. Gross. Um, <laughs> and um, but she is really, really powerful. Um, she has a ton of influence during their reign. Um, she, there are, there's almost like no laws that are passed that don't in some way mention her. Yep. Um, and so she's, she's super interesting, but what he gets into is how these writings about her, um, are really like he you know these are his words in his very scholarly book slut shaming her Ew. and because she has this disreputable background yeah and so people wanted to really like jump on jump on that so through these women he gets an opportunity to really dive into 
topics of consent, topics, and, you know, there's a lot of rape in in this That's dialogue. Like shocking to me, Kelsey. <laughs> but what's interesting is, and one of the things he talks about in his book is just how when women make, and there are some women whose rapes are recorded, but not their names, mm-hmm. which is like classic history, right? Like the primary source is not recording the names of the women, but sure, tell the whole story of her, you know, assault. Great. Well, you know what? Not naming the victim. Yeah, I guess. Not a bad thing. They don't do it today. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So history repeating itself a little. History repeating itself. I love that. Um, in in a In a, I guess, a way to protect the victim, but it also, you know, from a historical standpoint, it means we don't know these people's names. And yet right. the thing that they're remembered, for, you know, the thing they go down in history for is these rapes. And it's fascinating that among all this dialogue about, you know, what's going on at court and what's going on in government, they take the time to write about, you would think, kind of Everything. like a, a, a rape that's happening on the side. And so his book is is packed full of of some of this historical information that helps him really do great analysis of these conversations that they're having about all of these these complex issues. This is, I, I feel incredibly privileged to have had a chance to sit down yeah. and talk to him. Now, he's really interesting because he's the first art historian that yeah. we're bringing on. He's not a historian, <laughs> and I'm sure he would hate that I just Kelsey's said that. making air quotes. <laughs> You know, he is incredibly brilliant and he probably could have gone into any field that he wanted to. And how did he pick art history? And, um, I always am in pushing my kids to, you know, if you're not digging, you know, the, the texts that we're reading, art history is a really cool thing. And surprising it, of you. It, <laughs> but it's also, you know, there's also a lot of conversation among women historians about using artwork to try to teach women's history. Yeah. And so I think it's really cool that he he went into this field and then ended up writing a book that highlighted so many women. Um, so I asked him how he got into art history, and this is what he said. Yeah, so I am Roland Betancourt. I am a professor of art history at the University of California, Irvine. Yeah, so I took AP art history and AP psychology my sophomore year of high school. Um And I always wanted to be like a psychologist, a geneticist, or a theoretical physicist, so not an art historian. And as like high school went by, I realized that I was just really good at art history. And like, it was one of those things where it just came naturally, Um, like, you know, for fun, students would literally take the AP art history book and like open it to a random page, point at an image, and I would identify it. Um, And it just, as someone who was not good at memorization and stuff like that, it just felt very natural. Um, and I was really, I came to art history. One of my biggest interests was just the fact that, you know, I think definitely my mother's perspective on art history, who was very pro, like informing me just as part of like being a well-rounded human. There's always a sense that art history is where you talk about at a cocktail party, but it's not what you do. Um, and I was very drawn by like, why does art have that power and that sort of like elitism associated with it and like um, sort of cultural cachet. And so that was sort of like an interest in art history as like a structuring of like power and how it um, is so has this currency in the modern world. And, you know, as I was applying to colleges, I realized, well, there's no point in like trying to do something with math when you're 
not it's not that I wasn't good at math. It was just like it wasn't what came naturally to me. Like it was a struggle in a in like a way that was not generative. And so I was just like, oh, this really like I know how to think through this. Like I understand this very well. And it feels like not something forced. Mm-hmm. And I sort of leaned into that and embraced it and sort of my coming into college, I was already an art history major. And the goal was, I don't know what area of art history. I really like the discipline of art history as a sort of question um, and a place for interrogation. But the idea of like the specifics were still up in the air. And I really decided that I want to do Byzantine art history, like senior year of college as I was applying to grad school. So, which is not usually how that works. So um, I have a very unorthodox trajectory in art history in the sense that it's not like I love X art. And so I want to learn everything about it. It's more like I'm fascinated by the existence of art (laughs) (laughs) and the category of art. Um, Are you an artist yourself? I am not. And it's something that I've never, never touched in many ways. Yeah. Um, awesome. That makes it a very interesting story and a really fascinating journey that you ended up there nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely, I mean, that's always a divide in art history departments, whether you have an art department attached to you or not. And yeah, no, I have no training whatsoever in art. So the first figure that he highlights in the book is Mary of Egypt. And she is this huge figure in the Eastern Christian world and a saint. And so um, I asked him to tell me a little bit about her history. And this is what he said. So Mary of Egypt is a pretty popular figure in um, Christianity overall, but has a you know particular prominence in the Orthodox traditions. I say vaguely because it is, you know, Greek Orthodoxy, Serbian Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, and all the other Orthodoxies, Bulgarian, so forth, of um, the Eastern Christian world, and that come out of the Byzantine um, religious rites. She is a fairly prominent figure in that tradition. Of course, Mary of Egypt is an interesting figure because she's an early Christian saint. We don't really know details exactly about when she lived or when her stories were just originally written, but we do have some key texts of her narratives that are sort of the the standard of what we know about her figure. Mary of Egypt is popularly one of the figures that gets sort of conflated with Mary Magdalene, and there are all these sort of like back and forth where the two Marys are sort of both these figures that are sort of former sex workers, somehow reformed, um, run off into the desert, then oftentimes in different stories, grow hair on their body, become these miraculously fed and nourished figures in different ways. So very much like a a narrative arc that follows very closely in what you see in other early Christian um, women, saints' lives. And Mary of Egypt was an interesting figure for me because her story really in many ways captured a lot of the trajectories that I was looking at in the book. And yet she wasn't an example perfectly of a full um, one of these subjectivities. So, you know, um, I discuss in the book how, of course, she has the background of being a sex worker. She's described as being extremely um, 
lascivious in her actions. She's very extreme. She's accused of also raping men, which the author uses as like the extreme of like her sexual um, lust that she even raped men. She basically was supposed to go on pilgrimage and saw a bunch of hot guys on a ship and joined the ship. That's literally what the saints lives tells us. Like that's, that's sort of the, the narrative of, of Mary of Egypt. And then she essentially repents goes runs off into the desert essentially to protect men from her um lust and then there's this moment in her life where she's encountered by this um figure of sosimus um who um is uh, another religious figure and he catches her in the desert and sees her as a black figure um because she is tanned from the sun um and this is a very common trope when um women go off into the desert and become holy they start to be associated with masculine characteristics like coarse skin and so forth. And one of those characteristics is dark skin. So they often have this description that these figures looked as if they were Ethiopians. And in the process of all this and trying to communicate this masculinization, there's often images of Mary of Egypt where she is depicted in ways that almost looks almost looks like she's grown body hair in ways that are not just sort of this metaphorical um, or symbolic approach, but really this very sort of concrete sense that the desert in essence has in some way changed um her um sexual characteristics and that her gender in some ways has been has ascended as those texts would write to sort of a masculine um gender um which is closer to god and so she's not a figure like we find in other instances of the book that is focused on one of these issues of sexuality, gender, or race, but she is a figure where you see all these various trajectories sort of intersecting with one another in passing ways that really in some ways demonstrate just how powerful and what currency these types of um, tropes had in these texts. The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. Our goal is to create free learning materials for educators to use tomorrow. Head over to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. Download everything and give it to a friend. We need women's history in the classroom like yesterday. If you're not a history teacher and you want to do something to help us out, head over to our store. We've got all sorts of fun things for you to peruse, and all of that goes to supporting our mission. If you think what we're doing is needed, you can support the Remedial History Project by becoming a sponsor through Anchor or becoming a patron. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes materials, gear, bonus episodes, and more. Most importantly, they're putting their money where their mouth is and helping us get women's history into the classroom. Our history maker, Jeffrey, our history heroes, Christian, Brooke, and Barbara, our historians, Jamie, Kent, Jenna, and Nancy, and our history allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Anne, and Alicia. Thank you so much. You all make this show possible. What's really tricky about a lot of ancient histories, including Mary of Egypt's history, is that there's a lot of like myth meets historical fact yep. meets like too many iterations of the story yeah, that like, are what do you different. Trust? Yeah, how do you trust it? And so that was sort of <laughs> as he's talking about her, I'm kind of like, so sh- should I be teaching about this person or not? Because there's a lot of yeah, like, exactly. Like where's the where's the line? Yeah. So is this a true story? And where like where do you fall on that question? This is what he said. Yeah, I think the answer lies somewhere 
in between um, sort of total fact and total fiction. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of these, basically every early Christian saint, I think there's, for many of them, it's the same question. Did these figures actually exist or are these stories that were embellished to create this sort of idea? And like, you know, um, one of the, one of the interesting things is that in this period of early Christianity, like the idea of monasticism, like monks and people running off into the desert, living on their own, what is known as asceticism, basically practicing, ex practicing extremes to abandon earthly life and come closer to God are really in a moment of development and coming to fruition. And so you did certainly have people who were doing very weird things in the desert um, um, because of their sort of, um, you know, as a way of practicing their Christianity. Um, and so certainly figures like Mary of Egypt existed in some capacity. Um, and this repentance arc, um, I think in many ways, I do think here, one way of putting it is, I think that every fragment of Mary's life definitely reflects the experiences of late antique, early Christian women that existed, whether all these narratives fell into one person um, that's more of the question that probably um, we, you know, we will never know the answer to in many capacities. And one of the interesting things as well, and that's so important to keep in mind when thinking about saints um, from the early Christian world, from the Middle Ages, is that you have various iterations of their lives, each which choose to stress different aspects. So oftentimes, some of these stories get even like more sanitized over the years, where they'll take out you know, maybe, maybe they aren't as lustful. Maybe they aren't on um, this. So there's a very complex history also in the textual tradition, but in some of the earlier accounts that we have, we do have these figures that, you know, fit the models of, especially what these Christian writers were seeing in like the late antique city, they were seeing sex workers. They were seeing um, a constant confrontation with both Christians and also pagans who were living lives differently than they were understanding and ascribing to them. And so definitely, I think that the stories and pieces of the narratives reflect the lives of women. And in many ways, one thing that's also important is that if nothing else, they reflect also the negative stereotypes used against women in these periods. So the next figure that he gets into in the book is Agatha, and he uses her story um, to help highlight some interesting ideas of consent. Um, and I had never really heard about her. And one of, I, I'd never heard of her, but one of the things that I found really interesting is for Mary of Egypt, one of the ways that you can see her gender fluidity is she is off in the desert and then comes back with hairy legs and dark skin. And those are perceived as very like masculine things yeah. that are attached to her. And when she assumes this sort of like masculine identity, she then gets sainthood. And what was interesting, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, very like, you know, so, so like the more manly you become, the more saint-like you are, the more God-like you are. And what was interesting in contrast with this woman, Agatha, is that to punish her, they remove her breasts. So they remove her femininity. And to me, that seems like 
what's the message here? Are we trying to be more masculine or more feminine? Or is it more complicated than that? Is it not as simple as... I don't think you can get it that granular, but I don't know. I just... It is a good juxtaposition as far as like, why would you take someone's femininity and highlight someone's masculinity? Yeah, like reward that. So he gets into this a little bit and I, but I also think this, the martyrdom of Agatha is a really good example of um, the ways that Christians continue to be treated, you know, it th- through this right. time period and how that's seen by the, by the Byzantine church. So this is what he said. Yeah. I mean, there are a series of different um, martyrdom practices. Um, and yeah, Agatha is very sort of famously, she's one of these female um um, saints who basically their torture is that they um, have their breasts cut off. Um, and one of the interesting things about figures like Agatha is that oftentimes these figures are not, they're not being martyred in the sense they're not being killed through this punishment. They're actually intended to live afterwards. And this fits into basically Roman practices that persist within the Byzantine Empire, very importantly, of various forms of mutilation as a form of punishment for crimes. Um, and it's weird to me that on the one hand, becoming dark skinned and hairy yeah. is like how you achieve sainthood. But mm-hmm. then you're also punished by losing your breasts. Like t- I, that seems very strange. Like you would think it would almost be a reward. Like, congratulations, you've achieved sainthood. Like, you've lost your breasts. Yeah. I don't know. Is that just not the general message or am I missing the point? I think, so I think this is, I mean, this is when you're getting really to the complexities of what the early Christian world and, you know, the early middle ages, just to like focus more on like, let's say, let's say the first millennium, um, CE, AD, um, you basically have, you know, for for the first 600 years, you have Christianity trying to define itself. Like for the first 600 years, the church is debating literally in, in the fifth century, they're debating like, what is Christ? Like, this doesn't make sense in the Bible. What is the Christ exactly? Like, what what is this? We don't have basically any forms of Christian art before essentially the third century. And when writers are writing you know, a century later or several centuries later, they're like, well, they were painting images of Christ since day one. Uh, And so you have this moment of immense flux for like the first 500 years of Christianity, where Christianity is trying to define itself. It's trying to position itself against paganism. It's trying to fit its place in ancient philosophy. It's trying to understand like its role. And so you do have these sort of like conflicting ideas and approaches. And I think one of the most important things is that in these transformations that happen with these saints, um, like Mary of Egypt, you have certainly a notion here that through these practices of asceticism in the desert, you are, you know, getting closer to God, which is very different than someone who, because they have professed their Christianity, are being um, physically assaulted in a way that others see as being most painful to them in order to make them feel pain and to have shame. And so I think that's also a very important way of thinking about these conversations about gender, because you see that the sort of um, masculinity as an aspirational practice works for some saints. Um, 
And for others, it does not. It's not necessarily the lies that they want to lead or the lies that they are leading. Um, and so it definitely shows various practices of Christianity undergoing um, un- occurring throughout the period that are not dedicated, are not specific to a particular cult or um, like um, not genre, but genre of Christianity. Yeah, um, but rather are just different practices. So very much um, the will and intention of the figures are very much taken in mind. Um, and in that manuscript that I show, um, where um, you see Agatha, um, you also you have a series of brutal depictions of the martyrdom and suffering of various um, saints in ways that are utterly grotesque and highly detailed. So it's it really is a um, <laughs> a rich variety of every way to die um, in graphic color. So in Byzantine history, there's this period called iconoclasm. And in this period, there's a lot of um, destruction of, of images and um, one thing that's really interesting is that the story of the Virgin Mary, which is very old, sort of comes up again. And there is all of this religious scholarly writing about her consent to become the mother of God. Okay. And um, in, a, in a weird way, basically, the, the biblical story is this angel Gabriel appears to her and is like, hey, God is going to like put a baby in you and you're going to give birth to that baby and whatever. But um, there's all of this dialogue in the culture at this time about consent and consent being very important for both men and women, especially in sexual relations um, and in, in, in life, right? Have, yeah. like, consenting to, to how you're being treated. And so um people started to sort of look at this story and being like, so did God like get her consent to do that? Right. Yeah. And, and starting to, to question the story. So there's all this really interesting dialogue about, about her and that story, but new scholarship being contributed in this time period to sort of reevaluate this old biblical story that everybody knows. Um, And so I was just curious if he could expand on that and share with everybody about some of the the conversations about consent that they're having in this this period. So this is is what he said. There is this very... um, fascinating thing that happens after the period of iconoclasm so in the byzantine world we really divided into (laughs) loosely there are two dividing points in byzantium one is iconoclasm um, which is the destruction of images particularly in the eighth and ninth centuries um and there are other periods of iconoclasm throughout basically anxieties about the use of images um, but the, this is the key moment. And then basically everything after the late ninth century, um, onward until t- 1204, um, when crusaders sack and occupy Constantinople, um, that's basically what we call the middle Byzantine period, which is sort of this moment of like, r- sort of reeling from iconoclasm and sort of defining itself in many ways, in the ways that we stereotypically think about Byzantium historically. and. It's quite interesting that after this period of iconoclasm, for reasons that are not particularly clear to me, um, even though, of course, I I talk more in depth about various other sort of cultural 
um, trends that are happening at the time. There's this growing interest in um, Mary's consent at the Annunciation. So the idea that when, you know, Gabriel arrives and says, you know, you're going to be the mother of God, you know, the question that didn't, Mary must have consented. Like that was a question, not a, not a command. And it's interesting because that's a lot of what Christian theology is throughout the Middle Ages. And I think we often have to have a modern understanding of Christianity that's like, you believe what you're told and that's it. Don't question it. And it's like, no, it's quite the opposite. Christian writers throughout the first millennium and a half of Christianity are constantly being like, this makes no sense. The Bible gives us no other information. We have to reason this out. And it's sort of like this respectful, like, if if X, Y, and Z are true, then how does this work? And it's sort of a lot of the theological thinking operates as this sort of like paratext that's sort of, I like to always describe it to my students as like fan fiction. It's like, you know that your characters did X, Y, and Z on the TV show. And if you want to sketch a narrative for them, you need to respect those points that are canonical, and but you can understand how they might have been led to these points. And so I think that's that's very much what you see in homilies. Like in homilies, that's the whole point, that you maybe are reading a paragraph from the gospel, from one of the gospels, and you are then creating a fleshed out narrative about that paragraph. And so th- these are the moments where you really see this type of like um, sort of questioning of the text and thinking through like, what does it, what else happened in the narrative? And that's very much what you see early Christian writers, medieval writers um, doing. They try to animate the scene and fill in the gaps. And what you see after iconoclasm is this desire to fill in the gap of the, you know, the few lines that um, Luke gives us about what happens at the Annunciation. And basically it's this idea, this emphasis that Mary had to listen to the good tidings of the angel and debate whether she wanted to be the mother of God. And then after that, consent to it, agree to it in some capacity. And this comes from these various also earlier conversations about how did Mary conceive, which was a huge um, question in the early um, Christian period. And even in the late medieval period, if you're looking at Western images, you'll often see, for example, like the Holy Spirit, like nose diving into Mary's ear. So there's always this idea that she conceived through sound because sound you perceive without being penetrated. And so it's the perfect metaphor for the inviolate, immaculate, like not, not immaculate, but um, the virginal conception of Mary. And so what that caused an issue was, wait, but you don't consent to sound. You don't, you have no agency. You just hear things when they happen. And so how exactly did Mary conceive? And so they, they deploy ancient and medieval understandings of perception to basically say, yes, the sound did enter her, but when it entered her, she had to debate it in the mind and the heart. And it wasn't until she agreed to what it was saying that the conception actually occurred. And so you have these this fascination with understanding that Mary has the agency in this moment. And this develops in a period where they're thinking about various forms of consent, so like consenting to marriage, um, making sure that you're not sort of like eloping in some capacity that is not according to the consent of your family, making sure that emperors aren't being forced into monasticism to remove them from the throne or other wealthy elite figures. Um, And so you have these sort of parallel conversations on consent. And what we see over the next few centuries is that you have this intense fascination and clear articulation that 
Mary had to consent to um, becoming the mother of God to a point that then is paralleled with Adam um, and the creation of Eve and so forth and so on as you can read more about in the book. But um, and so it's it's this very interesting moment where there's this idea that sort of the salvation offered by Christ comes from this idea of consenting. Um, a parallel that happens with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, where his human will does not want to be martyred. He does not want to die. And that the sacrifices that he consents to being killed, um, knowing that it is not only his duty, but knowing what it will do for humanity. And so there's this really strong articulation that the salvation offered by Christ's sacrifice, but also beginning with Mary's conception, is all rooted on this will. Um, And this comes from earlier theological debates as to whether Christ had a human will and a divine will, or if there was only one will. And those are various heretical (laughs) iterations that I will not get into. um, There are also critics of the church too, that uh, because you, you were talking about the issue of, you know, penetration in order to keep, keep um, the virginity narrative going as well. And, um, but there were critics of the church originally that basically were trying to say that she was raped and this is all just Mm -hmm. like made up and, you know, she's actually an adulterer, right? Yeah, so that's um, in the early Christian period, you have a lot of justifications um, about um, just basically like what is actually the, you know, the conception of Christ. And I mean, it's pretty sort of garden variety speculation as to pregnancy um, that is somehow out of wedlock in some capacity. So it's it's a pretty, um, I think the weirdest experience that I've Ever one of the weirdest experiences of writing this book was going into the story that um, she was either raped or had an affair with a Roman soldier called Panthera, um, which is the the weirdest moment in the book because in that moment I remember that like maybe five years before that or ten years before that my uncle who um, basically does he supplies mechanics with auto parts was like. Roland, I was at the, like the, the mechanic shop today and they were talking about how Mary was actually raped by a Roman soldier named Panthera. And I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And so it was like one of the weirdest moments to like years later be like, who in my uncle's circle was reading early Christian texts on like the, like the origin of Christ? Like what? <laughs> um, which is not like totally obscure. It's not unknown, but it was just, yeah, yeah it was one of the weirdest moments of like, <laughs> um, having this like moment of like, yeah, you know, he actually didn't even tell me that much detail. He was just like, I heard that Christ's actual father is this, is this soldier named Panthera. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, And my family's Cuban. And so um, he said it to me in Spanish. And then, so it just means Panther. And so I was like, Panther, what are you talking about? Christ's father was a Panther. I, yeah. And so like, it finally made sense in the process of doing the research for this book of like, oh, oh, Perhaps open more questions than it answered, but yeah, still. <laughs> we are so excited to announce that the Remedial Herstory Project will be having our first annual summer retreat coming to you in August of 2021. Join us here in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Kick back, relax, enjoy the spa, and a little bit of women's history. We are so excited to be bringing some of the best women's historians in the world to you. 
They are here to teach you the bits of women's history that you may have missed in history class, and we are here to guide you on the tools that you will need to get them into the classroom. The retreat is 50% pedagogy and 50% women's history. You will leave with dozens of printed lesson plans, learning materials, and tools that you can use. You can see the entire schedule of events on our website, as well as the names of some of the historians who will be presenting www.remedialherstory.com. Look for the page about the summer retreat. Come relax and enjoy the White Mountains of New Hampshire with us. His book is really long and he gets into a lot of things that we didn't talk about or highlight. And so I highly encourage everybody to look at some of these things. He talks a little bit more about gender fluidity in the book. Um, But the last figure that we talked about in our conversation was Theodora, Justinian's wife. And, um, you know, one thing that I think is maybe confusing to me because you know, like we just had an actress marry an American actress, marry a British Royal. It's much more common for people to marry people that are not in their class or station. right? I mean, are you and your husband in the same class? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I guess it is still pretty common. Um, but, but, um, but I also wouldn't have, like, I don't really think of myself as consciously making that choice. Like, oh, he's above or below or within my station. <laughs> yeah, but I bet you'd be an interesting marriage study um, in modern time of how many people come from a like-like family scenario. Yeah. Well, psych- psychology tells us that people like things and people that are like, like them. them. Yeah. It's so, called the like-me effect. Yes, exactly. So um, – so I think that that's definitely a factor. Yeah. Um, just it's sort so of what you're If you look at my husband to. and I's families, they're almost identical in the background yeah. of where they came from yeah. and what they're up to. Kind of creeps you out a little bit. It right? does, but it also it makes sense. You know, you gravitate towards people that you're comfortable with and make sense. Yeah. But I think that's why we are so interested in the dichotomy of like a really rich man marrying a really young girl. It's like, what do they have in common? Yeah. Like, you're always trying to look for the similarities. Yeah. There. But it's interesting that point that you just made helps highlight, I think, when people are in relationships that are different and they don't seem like they're similar. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of social conversation about those people. Mm-hmm. And Justinian and Theodora are no exception to that. Unfortunately for her, despite all of her power, despite all of her prestige and seemingly respect, given that she's mentioned in so many laws of this Mm -hmm. time period, this poor woman is slut shamed. And like the documents that go down in history about her are just like so horrible. So my question to him is why? (laughs) Like (laughs) how, like how is this permitted in in the empire of the empress, right? So this is what he said. Yeah, Theodora is fascinating. I think think one of the most fascinating things about her is precisely that we both know so much about her and so little about her. Um, And I think that always makes like the perfect combination for a really intriguing and exciting story. Um, And she's also a very strange figure because of the fact that if you ask any Byzantinist, an art historian, a historian, any of us, and you ask us, tell us about Theodora, like just about her life, 
you will probably draw on details of her life that come out from this text known to us as the secret history. It really, it's, it's titles really more, it's, it really means sort of unpublished in the Greek. It's this thing that was basically this text that was not supposed to really ever be shown to people. It doesn't really seem to have had, we don't have many copies of it. Like it's very, a very unique text. Um, but her, we don't know much about her life in the other official documents written by the court historian Procopius. And so the only details about her life is really what we find in the secret history. And Theodora had a fair amount of power. I mean, Justinian, and also I will say his general Belisarius were brutal. Um, they basically expand largely the footprint of the Byzantine Empire to cover um, in the years, especially after Justinian's death, the entire Mediterranean. And so it is, in terms of um, Western expansions, the greatest expansions of the Byzantine Empire um, that it sees in its history on, on those grounds, even though later there's more expansion eastward. And so you do have this emperor that in many ways fits our sort of, you know, mid 20th century models of a good ruler, aka you had a lot of successes in war, you conquered a lot of land, and you built a lot of buildings and things. And so there's also this vibrant history where we actually have portraits of Justinian and Theodora in Ravenna in Italy, which is fairly rare um, for a lot of um, Byzantine emperors. And just to have those types of excellent images um, in a church that they also sponsored. And so you know, they are important figures. Justinian also built the Church of Hagia Sophia um, in um, present-day Istanbul. And so you have all this patronage that we know about as well associated with them. So Theodora is interesting because, like I said, we don't know much about her official life in the about her life in the official documents. But then in the secret history, you have all these details about her upbringing, which basically like she worked as a sort of burlesque dancer in the circus. Her father was the keeper of bears, um, somehow working in the hippodrome, performing shows in between chariot races. Essentially, that's the gist of what she was doing. All sort of work that, especially in, late, in the late antique period, was coded with sort of entertainers, which were seen already as somehow immoral um, by Christian thinkers at the time and also associated with sex work. And so you have a lot there that's that comes out of Theodora, especially a lot of very graphic descriptions of her um, sexual desires um, and her various um, actions. Basically, um, voracious lust, you know, tell, the text tells us about how she wanted to be penetrated by every orifice in her body and lamented that the nipples in her breasts were not bigger. And then says that, you know, she had sex with all the, all the people in the party all the servants and she was still not satiated and wanted more. So like, just like very intense and vitriolic um, what we would call today slut shaming. And what's interesting also about it is that while people say, yeah, these are just tropes. We really don't have in a late antique text, anything that comes close to the extremes that we see in this text. And what's really fascinating about this is that it's written by um, Procopius who was the court historian of Justinian and Theodora. And the opening of this book is, you know, really reads like a conspiracy theory today or like a sort of tell-all memoir where it's like, I was there, I wrote the official histories, and I couldn't tell you all this because 
had I told you this, I would have been killed immediately. And so here I'm going to tell you what really happened during the reign of Justinian and Theodora. And that's where you get all this information. And it's a fascinating text because you have details about their rule that we have corroborated in other sources. And there's evidence that this might have had some of the material that would have led to a, a sort of third volume of his official history. And then we have the stuff on Theodora and all the, the slut shaming. And then at the same time, we also have details that recount how, you know, if you stayed late enough in the palace with Justinian, he would start pacing the hallways and his head would disappear because he was an actual demon. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> so you have these, you have this text that's very unruly in how you are able to approach it. It's mixed with facts, with fiction, and with all these sort of very vicious attacks on various people, not just Theodora, um, that are also sort of like bring up a lot of questions as to what were these figures' lives like and also why was this author doing it? I mean, I think at the end of the day, she was seen as a woman who had a lot of power and a lot of sway over the empire. That is not unique. There are many instances in which imperial like mothers, um, so empresses basically, you know, their husband might die and their, their, you know, the, their eight-year-old son is ruling the empire. And it's like, no, the, the eight-year-old is not ruling the empire. It's she's ruling the empire. And so you have later instances like this, but you never see again the sort of extreme that you see with Theodora. And so she is a very interesting figure. Um, Justine and Theodora's reign also had a lot of, you know, it was very tumultuous. They went they went after a lot of their political enemies, um, oftentimes accusing them of homosexuality, um, or as they say, um, bringing up known past sort of same gender um, intercourse and using it against them to, in order as an excuse to prosecute them. And they also, um, you know, there was essentially an uprising against Justinian in the city. And he said, okay, let's come to terms with this, brought everyone into the Hippodrome and then brought in the Byzantine army and slaughtered everyone. And it's in the ashes of the city being burnt down by these riots that Hagia Sophia is built because they need to rebuild the old church that was burned down in the uprising. And so you have an you have a, a period of Byzantine history that has a lot of, you know, monuments that are accessible to the art historians and the archaeologists, but filled with a lot of brutality that occurred that also meant that it was a very it was as as um, thriving a period as it was unstable. And I think that's something that's very important also to keep in mind that Justine and Theodora also were, um, despite their modern sort of commemoration, um, they really did not have the most positive outlook in the period. Mm. And so it's, it's a really complex story. And I think that's the wonderful thing about um, them is that they're a very interesting um imperial couple but they also have a very complex history which i think really deserves a lot of close scrutiny and consideration there's a lot of conversation in your in your chapter you talk about um, contraception and abortion mm -hmm. uh, in relation to her so why do you tie those things to to her what part of this history there is makes you connect her with that yeah so we have passing references repeatedly in these moments of like sexual shaming on Theodora that bring up the fact that her and basically her friends, um, other elite imperial women were using contraceptives. And so, for example, there's a line about Theodora 
um, that in passing says that, you know, many oftentimes she conceived, but every time she deployed every known method um, to ensure that, you know, she would um, terminate the pregnancy. And what's fascinating is that the reason why I sort of like use Theodora as a way of like boring into these questions is because the use of abortives and contraceptives were always associated with sex workers in popular texts and oftentimes associated with the vanity of women to preserve their bodies and so forth. And so these two things are very much intertwined in a lot of the texts that we see from that period. And at the same time, we have a wonderful host of medical evidence from the period um, that gives us very clear descriptions on various surgical and abortive and contraceptive practices that the Byzantine doctors um, had knowledge of. And it's often been speculated that this book um, by Aetius of Amida, who's a medical writer, this sort of gynecological book that is added to this series, which is unique um, for these medical texts, that this book was perhaps made for Theodora's um, entourage, that it was somehow associated with her rule. We don't know if that's true, but we definitely do have a sense that in this period, these sort of knowledges are connected. And so this was a way for me to sketch in these narratives of like this sort of like isolated medical evidence we have over here. And then these sort of passing references to the lives of women in the period. Um, And so for me, it was very interesting to think about the ways in which, of course, you know, a sex worker who is being attacked in a sermon by a priest down the street is going to have a very different sort of target than the empress who has the most elite and well-trained doctors and all these other hosts of women that could basically undertake these practices in private. And so it is very interesting to think about like the access to medical knowledge. And for me, it was also important to understand just like, what are these, the histories of these practices and what type of medical knowledge do we actually have? I think the stereotype is often that like, you know, there's no knowledge of science and medicine in the middle ages. And, you know, when, when you have texts that are literally like, if a mother is dying, perform what, you know, what we would call like um, a, a late term abortion, like here's how to remove the fetus if the mother's going to die. Like when you have texts like that, you know, it really does alert you to a different state of medicine. And what's really fascinating about um, the contraceptives and abortives is that a lot of these texts are sort of discarded because they're oftentimes a lot are copies or compendia of earlier knowledge from antiquity. Um, but especially in the contraceptives and the abortives, um, the Byzantine texts actually have um, modifications to those earlier texts, basically like shoring up the medicine. So basically being like, and if you add like the skin of a pomegranate, um, you'll be sure to make this a foolproof contraceptive. Um, and so there's this idea that this knowledge is being sort of actively revised. And then, you know, part of this research was also looking at other sources. And we have a host of different sources from across the Mediterranean and Western Europe, where you have the skill of Byzantine doctors being tied in to life-saving procedures um, for women around pregnancy. And so you you do have this broader picture where you begin to see. And so for me, a lot of what this book is about is about how do we take these various fragments and make meaning out of them? Like that is to say, like, how do we understand that they reflect shards of what is a larger picture that we don't have the sort of like 
key evidence for, or that we maybe don't want to believe the evidence that we do have. And so for me, the story of Theodora really opened up all these various questions through also a lens of like, you know, the, the rhetoric against women as well. That it, That's just so fast. I, I, it's interesting because I feel like there are, per, you know, there are periods of history where the medical abilities are, it feels like there's some advances and then maybe it disappears or it gets lost to a different area of the world or something, or maybe I'm just wrong, but I, I it's, it's interesting that how advanced that was. Yeah. I mean, and it's fascinating to see like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm biased as a Byzantinist, but I just always love when you have like Western texts written like in Spain being like, oh, and he was a Greek doctor. So he he was very well trained. Yeah. Or when you have like the recounting of, you know, they witnessed this operation in Constantinople. And it's like, ah, yes, yeah. <laughs> here's the knowledge of Byzantine doctors. And, you know, we have a lot of um, sort of archaeological art evidence as well. Um, we have like surgical tools from Byzantine doctors. We have like medicine boxes and so forth that are preserved at everywhere from the British Museum to Dunbar and Oaks in DC um, that really sort of speak also more fluidly to these um, lives and types of knowledge that we had. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you feel like people should know or pull out of your book? I think the most important thing to keep in mind about this book is that it really is a desire to understand what we've learned in many ways about ourselves, you know, culturally speaking, um, about how we think about gender, sexuality, and race, and using these ideas to think about how we look at the past and the things that we've oftentimes overlooked and ignored, like that we've said, oh, you know, um, oh, this possibly couldn't have existed. And even if it did exist, nobody like articulated you know, these realities for themselves. Like nobody said like, you know, um, whether it be about like gender identity, like, oh, nobody's actually out there saying that like, they do not feel like that their gender assigned at birth, like adheres to like their lived gender. And it's like, no, you have medieval texts that say that you have medieval texts that contemplate deeply about gender and they question the, the binaries of gender and so forth. And the same thing about whether it be about same gender relations and desire or whether it be about consent i mean i think it's very we have very clear and articulate ideas of um sexual consent being articulated around the virgin and like what's even more fascinating in that case is also just like being theologized Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's probably the best word but like they are being put in a theological context and being used to build up theological arguments and so that's really fascinating and i think that that's the level of complexity that we want to see in our sources. And I think that that's what makes a lot of this evidence really convincing. It's not just saying, here's a queer person in the past, or here's a trans person in the past, or, you know, here's a woman that got attacked um, for being a woman, Um, but really understanding how these conversations develop and what are the textures of them. I think that's really where we have a lot to learn and understand about the past. And I, I would hope that anyone reading this book leaves it with a sense that it's not that the Middle Ages were more open than the present, and it's not that the present that the sort of combinations of ideas, prejudices, and stereo- negative stereotypes that we have about these, I- these various concepts are not only culturally specific, but they are uniquely formulated. It's not tied to an idea of Christianity that's always been the same. It's not tied to um, a sort of like idea of modernity being different. They really are um, a very 
it's a very unique cultural moment that we see there as well, that in some ways is more open to certain ideas and in some ways more restrictive to others. And so I think that's, I think what I, I hope it's not, I don't think that you'll read this book and be like, oh, the paradise of the middle ages and how free and open it was. But you also should not leave it with a sense that the middle ages were these backwards, like backwater that didn't know anything and like um, had no sensitivity to these conversations. I mean, compared to other places, the Byzantine empire is way more diverse and open to diversity probably than other places are, right? In that era. Yeah, I think it's, that's a, a, complicated answer i would say that in some ways it's unique um i don't know if i would say that it's more open than other places but it had a very unique position and one of the things that i always like to stress is that for example there were a lot of eunuchs in byzantium um which is you know men who were castrated usually at an early age um and they had a high ranking eunuchs were also not the most popular they had negative stereotypes and positive stereotypes but they were also seen as like the imperial like power. They were closely associated with power and were oftentimes sort of the way in which we know angels to look like in the Western tradition is derived from eunuchs. When you have eunuchs running around the city of the capital of your empire, your ideas about gender and the fluidities and malleabilities of a gendered body will change. Like you have other categories of gender that whether they are distinct or not operate in ways that are not upset a clear binary. That's very different than the West where eunuchs were associated with something that like the Byzantines and the Muslims did in the East. And that was generally seen as negative, even though there were a lot of examples in Christian, um, in the Christian background of just various figures who either castrated themselves or were eunuchs. And so there, there are all these sort of, I guess, double binds is one word like to describe it, these sort of contradictions that happen in any cultural moment. Um, and so Byzantium, I think, has a unique um, combination of factors that make it very pressing today in ways that the Western Middle Ages has other forms of complexity. You know, there you have a lot of interesting conversations and other avenues of gender and sexuality, but Byzantium offers really unique um, perspectives on a lot of these issues because of its own place and the fact that it's been in many ways marginalized throughout um, the modern era. So one of the sad things about Byzantine history is that most history classes probably don't have the time to go into the depth that this guy does in his classes in college. Um, okay. Because rarely do I think most of us who teach world history spend more than a day or two on the Byzantine Empire. And he was telling me that one of his friends teaches AP world history and um, that he literally touched on two things from the entire empire. And you know, he's telling this to a Byzantine scholar and the Byzantine <laughs> scholar is just like, no. <laughs> oh. So um, my hope is that this conversation might not transform, you know, how we teach Byzantine history, but it might give people some tools to give the kids a little bit more depth to show them some visuals in class that might stick with them. Um, I think one thing that strikes me about Byzantine art is there's a lot of gold. There's a lot of um, 
it, it's just like visually very powerful and distinct. And okay. so um, it would be worth sort of Googling, you know, Byzantine art to, to get a sense of what I'm talking about. But it's all like golden and, and you know, just like gilded and really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that having the students, you know, especially Justinian, he definitely gets airtime in a world history class. So give some airtime to his wife and her power, her prestige, how she was treated in mm. time as this like lower class, powerful woman um, that, you know, was being disrespected by the people around her. Um, one comment that he makes in the book that I found really powerful was he said it is, with all of these people it is impossible to know maybe she really was a slut <laughs> right <laughs> and so we don't want to as historians make the assumption that the things that are being said yeah. are not actually true um but to to you know, reflect and talk about how, you know, it, why do people slut shame people today? What purpose does that serve? Why would you spend scholarly time recording this and right. making sure it gets into books that are going to be read by later generations? Why did it matter so much? What was the intention of that in this culture? Mm -hmm. What are they trying to say they value, right? You can pull a lot from that. Um, and then I think, a bigger thing is just helping students understand that even as far back as the Byzantines, they are talking about these things that we are talking about right. today and that larger message of these aren't new conversations. Yeah, we haven't evolved that far past slut shaming. Yeah, <laughs> right. Still, still going on. Yeah, always. Very interesting. And with Theodora, you know, the, the intersectionality of her less than reputable background, the rumors that she's using contraceptives and abortion, and why for that audience that somehow also tied to her being a slut, right, yeah. is is kind of interesting. Um, and again, something we see today. Yeah, weird. Feels, mm. feels very current. <laughs> so I'm going to make some of these images available to everybody and oh, um, give you some you know, student-driven questions that they can they can use to analyze some of these images, and you can draw on some of the ideas that he shared with us here and in his book. Um, the book is called Byzantine Intersectionality, and you can find it pretty much everywhere. <laughs> Great, thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, I'm Brooke. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story: The Other Fifty Percent. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.